This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Our last talk of the afternoon, our last talk of the afternoon, um, is a war stories talk. And we love a good, I love a good war stories talk. It's both cathartic and interesting. Um, so please join me in welcoming Tootie to the stage. Thank you. Thank you, and I will try and remember that I am the last thing that stands between you and your drink, and I will finish on time. So imagine a world. Imagine a world where design has a seat at every single table, where design is not about being the lipstick on the peg, but where we're responsible for creating true passion, true user value with every product or service that we design. How can we do this? How can we get our voices heard? I believe the answer is with design leadership. And design leadership isn't for managers. I think I've been a manager of people for, I don't know, 12, 13 years, and maybe only a true design leader for the last three or four. So there is a craft to doing this, a craft of making that you need to develop, that you need to practice. And it's a little different than the craft of doing research or writing content or creating design deliverables. I'm gonna share lessons about how to develop and practice this craft through different stories. Three sections. I'm gonna talk about designing the team, about creating teams with different skills and diversity. I'm gonna share three stories of three different companies, or multiple stories from three different companies around designing the organization. Stories from Method, a design firm where everyone is designers, so it's more about projecting to the outside, to the client. Stories from a startup where we needed to establish our seat at the table and then stories from my current company, from Facebook, about how to design at scale. Lastly, I'm gonna talk about how to redefine hands-on work. So the first step, what's the right team that you start with? When I talk to people, lots of people talk about when you start to hire designers, do you hire T-shaped designers or do you hire specialists? And I think the answer depends on the size of your team or your organization. So let's say you start as a single designer in a company or in an org. You're still surrounded by everyone else, this sea of engineers, product managers, sales, marketing, all these people. In this model, the solo designer needs to be a jack of all trades or a jill of all trades, whichever one you want to pick. I was a solo designer at my startup for six months. And despite not having designed icons for 10 years, I was the best person to come in and do that level of pixel pushing. I needed to set up my dev environment because nobody else cared about the front end CSS. And it wasn't production quality code, but it was what needed to get done. So this solo designer either needs to have many skills or at least have the passion and curiosity to be like, how do I just sit down and, and figure this out? So as the company grows, your organization grows, the design team grows. And now, when you have, say, a six-person design team, just by virtue of people being different, people having different passions, people having different skills, you start to have a little bit of diversity and a little bit of specialty. You might start with a researcher. You might have all these different disciplines. And this is a model that we used at Method Design, in which I have recreated using the very awesome onlinecharttool.com. And the actual skills around the outside are less important than the footprint in blue of what this particular mythical designer is. This is a designer who, as I've mapped out here, is more skilled in visual interface design and screen prototyping. 
which is different than someone else who maybe is more of a strategic designer who's more interested in problem solving, systems design, which is also different from a third model of someone who might have more of a background or interest in user research and idea generation. Different shapes of people as you develop a design team over time. So you've got a larger design team. We have the start of specialties. And when the design team gets bigger and bigger, you scale to an entire organization. We have 400-some designers at Facebook right now. And the trend right now for large organizations is to move away from centralized design teams to have the designers embedded within the different orgs of the company. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's a lot more autonomy, and you're sitting side by side with the people, the product people you're working with. The challenge with this, though, is how do you maintain a consistent brand, a consistent sense of this is the company that I work for and standards? The answer is with standards. These are standards that Facebook uses, and there are two of them. There's big business interface guidelines and fig Facebook interface guidelines. I work on the business design side of the house where our customers are advertisers, publishers, people who do business with Facebook, as opposed to people on the consumer side. So we have two different sets of standards, two different sets of standards because there's a different level of professionalism that you need from a business sense. And you guys know this stuff. We have styles for buttons, for look and feel, for usage, so that you don't have to rethink this and resolve this problem over and over again. You can focus on the problem at hand. And even more important, bake it into the code so that every single engineer is just going to reuse this and you have instant uh, consistency. So first lesson from designing the team, the shape and skills of your team will vary over time. You might start with more generalists and then go towards more specialists. We've started to talk about diversity in teams, but the one thing I want to stress is diversity of thought is something that's really, really important and something that we could do a lot better in Silicon Valley. A recent Harvard Business Review article talks about how diversity can drive innovation. And they talk about two types of diversity, acquired versus inherent diversity. Inherent diversity is what you're born with, your gender, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation. Whereas acquired diversity are skills and traits that you pick up over time. Living in another country can make you better able to design in a culturally appropriate way. Selling to women can give you more gender smarts. What this uh, article and research found is that companies with both aspects of acquired and inherited diversity were able to break into new markets better and expand existing markets. So the second lesson, don't surround yourselves with people just like you. Lack of diversity comes from the fact that we tend to hire people just like us. And this is because we all have biases about people. We all do. I have biases. We all have biases. And biases are sometimes a good thing. It's a way for us to make sense of just all the information and data coming to us from all over the world. And it's a way for us to start categorizing and stereotyping it. If you think about our hunter-gatherer days, if I'm going to come to a set of berries, I can be like, oh no, they're red, pattern match. Those are poisonous. I'm not going to touch them. Useful bias. The scarier, more powerful, more uncomfortable biases are the negative ones. And those are the ones that we need to overcome. I'm going to share with you an interactive session, which is a video made by the Facebook Learning and Development Team. And this might be a little uncomfortable. I know it was definitely uncomfortable for me when I started. I'm going to show you a video, and you're going to meet five people. And the point of this video is to talk about how powerful first impressions are. Hi, my name is Mary Jo Kennedy. Nice to meet you. 
Hi, my name is Andrew Kumar. It's nice to meet you. I'm Sanja. Nice to meet you. Hey, I'm Sanja. Nice to meet you. Hello, my name is Dustin Holt, and it's nice to meet you. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to do an exercise. And I know if I asked you to do this in the real world, you guys would tell me, I don't have enough information. I can't do this. But bear with me. If you had to pick one of these five people to bring in for an interview, who would you pick and why? I don't quite have enough time to do an interactive Q&A, so instead I'm going to share things that have been heard, very US-centric in our Menlo Park offices, but things that have been heard about first impressions. Mary Jo, she dresses very professionally. Andrew, he, he looks like an engineer. Sonia, she seems very approachable. She's the only one that came up and said, hi, I'm Sonia, very decisive. Simon also looks like an engineer. And hey, he went to Cal. I like him. Uh, cultural note, Cal is a shortened form of University of California, Berkeley, which is a really highly regarded technical school in Northern California. And he's wearing a cap that says Cal. That doesn't mean he went there. That doesn't mean he graduated. But hey, I like Cal. And then lastly, Dustin. He looks like a guy that works in finance. And yes, he does. Dustin actually does work in finance. <laughs> These are all real people at Facebook who volunteered to do this. So the interesting thing about this exercise is all of you only got a couple of sentences, a couple of words, not even a whole sentence out of each person. Yet, I'm sure many of you had a strong opinion about who you wanted to bring in, like I did. And here's the interesting thing. I'm not going to tell you to stop having first impressions, because I don't think that's possible. But I want you to be aware of how powerful a first impression is. If someone makes a good, positive first impression on me, I think they're more competent. I think they're more likable. I think I trust them more. I think they're more qualified for the job. And conversely, if they make a negative first impression, they've got to work harder to earn my trust. So the power of first impressions, very, very powerful. Please be aware of your negative ones. A call to action, because there is so much more that we can do as a tech industry. This site, uh, implicit.harvard.edu, lets you go in and explore a little bit about your own unconscious biases, flashes up a series of images, and lets you associate them to different things. So confession, I'm a working mom. And when I went and did this, I discovered, to my great chagrin, that I have an unconscious bias that links women with being at home with children, and men with being professional workers, the wage earners. They're all unconscious biases. Be aware of them, because it's a small first step. It's more of what we can do to get more diversity in our tech industry. So I've told you about designing the team. Now I'm going to share three stories about design and different types of organizations. And in all organizations, designers are seeking more impact and value for our work. We don't want to be the lipstick on the pig. And you guys know all this stuff. It's not about the surface level. It's about tr delivering true user value and impact. So the three companies that I'm going to share different stories from are one method, a design firm similar to some of the stories we've heard before, where it's a little simpler because everyone at the company is a designer. And it's more about projecting out to your clients. I'm going to share a story about starting at a startup where we needed to, to establish design processes and to establish our seat at the table. And finally, at Facebook, where there are designers on every team, how to become more strategic designers. I'll start with the first one, with method. 
And this is the first slide of the method sales pitch. And you hire an external consultancy because you have a problem and you want an expert to come in. You already have some preset credibility because you come in as this expert. And when you start, everything is care bears and rainbows. Everything is happy and good. And you have a shiny new problem. You're meeting new people. You get to ask a lot of questions, do research, do stakeholder interviews. Anything can happen. At the end of a discovery phase, as we've heard from many of the speakers today, this is what method would do, which is wrap up things in a very nice discovery brief. You want to show the, the clients that you've heard them, that you've heard what they've had to say, but you want to add an additional fresh pair of eyes, fresh perspective to show something like an ecosystem diagram or a way to reevaluate and look at the brand. So the first lesson to become a more strategic designer from a, from a design firm is first listen and learn. But then let the client know that you're not just listening, you heard them. You want to give them something back, a new perspective. We've seen a lot of process slides today. I think every firm has them. We all, as designers, probably have a variation of it on each of our portfolios. This process slide, along with a logo wall, is how a design firm says, trust me. We've solved your problem before. We've solved it for many different people. We will solve it for you. We know how to do this. And designers know what process is. There are countless times where I've been stuck, not with just a pristine piece of paper, but this whole nasty, tangled ball of yarn where I'm like, I'm a fraud. I don't know what to do about this. And yet I know that there is a process. If I step back, if I do some sketching, if I do some research, if I do some brainstorming, something pristine, something good, not perfect, but a good solution will emerge. So the second learning from design firms, trust the process. It works. Method is a firm has done this before. I've done this before. I need time. I need gestation. Give me this time. But I will come up with a good solution. The power of storytelling, this comes from Walt Disney, the master himself, with his Disneyland and Disney World parks all around the world, carefully curating each aspect of the beautiful service. The power of storytelling for a design firm is that each encounter with a client is special. They need to be engaged and magical because they're paying for this service. It needs to be out of the norm, interesting, entertaining, memorable. As part of the story, you need to bring the right people together. This is a workshop that we ran with a major Korean electronics company, bringing in all the right different stakeholders bringing in industrial designers, bringing in senior managers, bringing in different types of consultants and project managers. And you need to bring these people together because they need to experience the chemistry, the making of it. And you also need to make sure it's the right space to generate ideas. We were working on a video conferencing device, and we wanted to stimulate ideas by putting up different contexts of use, because a video conferencing device might play out differently in a living room, in a kitchen, versus a much more intimate bedroom. And lastly, make it memorable, similar to some of the exercises that are out here in this space, putting together Play-Doh materials to craft what this could look like. And the output itself honestly doesn't matter. It's more the shared experience, the fun, the memorableness of it that is going to create the foundation of a long-term relationship. So I'm going to share a video of an ideation session for another client that Method ran, just to give you a little bit more of a taste of what this feels like. So it keeps going, but the lesson to 
remember is that not for every single meeting, but for some most memorable ones, some special ones, you may want to stage the workshop, curate the people in the space, and make it memorable. Three lessons from Method as a design firm. First listen and learn, then synthesize. Trust the process and stage the workshop. So my second story is for two years, from two years at a startup. I started as designer number one, employee number 10, and two years later, Trifacta was a 200-person organization with a six-person design firm. And being a small company, I could go in and kind of demand an equal seat at the table. I could go in and say, I wanted to be peers. I wanted to be equal to the head of design and to the head of product. And we literally all, um, we all reported to the CEO and had a literal equal seat at the board table. And I was able to do that because what Trifacta does as an enterprise software product is helps any business person really clean up and work with big data so that you can visualize and use it to solve your business problems. And before Trifacta, you needed data scientists, data engineers, just very complex people to do this. So good design was good business here because Ease of use, a self-service interface, things that design brings to the table was the selling point for both the product and the company. First lesson from a startup, map design to the right problem. Find the organization, the product, the problem where design can have a ton of impact and then run like heck towards solving that problem. Another way that we did that and the strategy to have design make change is make sure that you have the right team. So let's say you start with two or three designers and you have a sea of engineers. What's the right ratio? John made uh, and Kleiner Perkins in a recent design and tech report says the right ratio for a startup is maybe one in five. A trifactor, we were one in seven. Not too bad. I think the ratios are important, but more important is the power of three, a designer, a product manager, and an engineer all working together, representatives for the user, the business, and technology. That's the core product team. But wait a minute, that's only half of the house. What about the other half, sales and marketing? Green, sales, money. So my team partnered with the sales team to go out on sales calls with them. We were the product specialists. And the other great thing was that it was a user research session because we could talk to users, understand their problems, understand their current workflows. The other team we partnered with was the support team because in, in doing end-to-end -end service design from setting up with their support experience and their ongoing customer life cycle is we were doing design and the support team desperately wanted to keep their retention numbers up. So the second lesson, know the business, find your partners, build trust, build relationships with them, speak their language and make sure that your goals map their goals so that together you can make design be strong. As part of the designing the organization, I also had a mandate to build in design culture as part of product culture. This was a hack brainstorm that we had around when people had free time to hack, what projects did they want to do. So I ran the first one, and I ran it as a typical design brainstorm. There were dots to vote on ideas that you liked. There were stickies for themes. And the great thing is this just took off as part of company culture so that every engineer was able to run this over and over again. And I also wanted to get people comfortable with drawing. So I brought in an external facilitator just to teach people how to draw. We did things like make sure that they were able to sketch out storyboards and draw detailed UIs. And one of our engineers even made a video of the day. The last thing I want to talk about is affecting the culture of doing product validation. This is one of our largest customers. And the head of product owns the roadmap 
product prioritization. And a typical product validation session would be, let's throw up a PowerPoint slide, let's sit around the table, have the list of features up, and hey, people, tell us what, what features you want. Instead, I ran this as a buy a feature exercise where we put all the features up on the wall. They're priced high, medium, low, depending on how hard it is to technically implement them. And then each of the stakeholders got a stack of stickies, which was their money, and they really got into this with their money to buy their particular features. It was fun, it was engaging, it was memorable, and I believe it got them just to loosen up and really talk about what their values are. So the third lesson, make design culture the company culture. Don't be this ivory tower of design where creating all this stuff and being like, ta-da, here is my beautiful work. Just make it a natural part of the company culture. Three lessons from designing a startup, map design to the right problem, know the business, and make design culture the company culture. Lastly, I'm gonna tell you about Facebook where designers already are an integral part of each product team, but yet we all want more of a strategic seat at the table. And culture is a really core part of this. Design culture is already company culture here with this beautiful living workspace surrounded by art with chalkboard walls where you can write with an analog lab where anyone in the company can go and create screen print posters. There's also a wood shop behind the analog lab, which is super cool. But the thing that is most heartwarming to me is that there is a whole empathy team Nothing to do with design, nothing to do with research. It's an empathy team whose job is to promote, to promote empathy throughout the company. So I work on the business design side of the house where, our, where we're servicing advertisers to help them make better ads, more appropriate, more targeted ads to reach the right people. What our empathy team does is take different product teams, different product groups to visit advertisers all around the world so we better understand what they're going through. Really awesome. But despite all this, at its heart, Facebook is the hacker company. The hacker culture is strong throughout the unfinished off spaces, and Facebook was started by engineers at its heart. We live by failing fast, thinking wrong, going back to the core of this entrepreneurial hacker culture. And what this means is that we still live in an engineering world, and unlike in a design firm, we can't take six months to preciously create that perfect design. Instead, we've got to go fast. We've got to be pragmatic. We've got to identify the North Star vision and then slowly iterate towards it. So my first lesson from Facebook is adopt the culture. Unblock the engineer. Go as fast as you can within the context of this culture. One of the first teams that, that I inherited had a solo designer, very talented designer. And this poor designer had to support 12 to 14 very, very fast engineers. And he did it. You know, he threw out all his design school learnings. He didn't try to educate about process or user research. He just produced as many comps as he could as quickly as he could. He unblocked the engineers. His teams loved him. The product managers, the engineers loved what he had to do. Another one of my teams manages the tool for ad creation, and it's a step-based navigation structure along the left, including a UI to allow people to select what videos or images they want to use in their ad. This was the mission for the team, to create a single ads creation platform across AM and PE that enables great experiences for advertisers. Ads Manager and Power Editor were two separate products, two separate code bases, and the mission of this team, this half, was to unify them. And I want to share this as probably a story of one of my biggest failures at Facebook, because 
while I did care about unification, of course you want to have a single experience to ship better experiences to advertisers. This was design work we'd done six to nine months ago. I was looking beyond that to once we have this unification, what better experiences can we have on this single platform? How can we make it more personalized? How can we make it more interesting? And what that did is it caused essentially a defocusing of the team, a defocusing between a vision of where we're going versus the pragmatic, this is where we need, what we need to ship right now. And that caused the designers, the engineers to become really just defocused. And this caused my cross-functional partners in engineering and in product managers not to trust my motives and what I wanted to do because I was causing this chaos and defocusing of the team. So my second Facebook lesson to, for better leadership is to align with the team mission, understand the working uh, ways of the team, the context of the team, and understand what needs to be shipping right now and support it. So remember that same team I told you about earlier with 15 engineers and 1 PM? After a while, after some time, we were able to hire more designers. We were able to talk about design processes. We were able to run workshops. We were able to do a lot of research and do things such as this, which is do elevator pitch exercises so that everyone could define the vision of the team and the product together. And it culminated in an all-day vision-defining offsite that we held at, at a goat farm, off-campus, separate, and as a team, just not to be too precious about this, because Sharing this visceral experience of cuteness of baby goats kind of cemented the relationships of the team and allowed us to, to rem remember this and create the foundation of the product together. So the last lesson from Facebook, first build trust, then introduce the change. After your credibility is established, then you can introduce new ideas. Three lessons from a large-scale organization, adopt the culture, first build trust, then introduce change. Oh, sorry, two, align with the team mission, and then third, First build trust, then introduce change. So I've told you the story of three very different organizations and shared lessons from them. The last section of my talk goes on to rethinking what hands-on work means. As a designer, hands-on work is pretty simple. You're producing some, some different deliverables, whether it's an interactive prototype or comps. But I wanted to introduce a different model for hands-on work for a design leader, a model around providing inspiration, design quality, and support. So let's start with support. Michael Scott from The Office, the world's best boss. That pretty much sums it up. If anything, he shows that being a manager is nothing to do with being a leader. Just the amount of control he has to have over every single episode of, of The Office, that's, that's the humor of the show. To become someone truly supportive, whether it's as a manager, as a mentor, as a peer, is to not solve problems for the people around you. It's to amplify your effect and to amplify the effect of the people around you. And this is very different for different people. For a more junior designer, it might be sitting side by side doing paired design. For a more senior designer, it might be about brainstorming techniques about how she can better talk with her product manager. But most of all, it's not solving their problems for you, for them. You are not going to solve their problems for them. The craft of this is about asking powerful questions so they can get to the solution themselves. And they'll probably do it differently than you will. But that's great. It's about amplifying their powers. A design leader is also ultimately responsible for the design quality of the product experience. At Facebook, we've, designed we've defined quality in a handy little mnemonic here called Ship Love. It combines ease of use, usefulness, and UI craft. 
And part of a design leader's craft is to create an atmosphere and processes where quality and ship love can flourish. And one way that we do this is through a process called a UX countdown. And this is actually uh, a photo from Trifacta where we did a lot of the same things. And what you do in a UX countdown is you bring together the entire product team and you have them use the product. Not their little feature that they built, but use it end to end. And you talk about it and you sit and you file bugs and the bugs are about workflow or nomenclature or fit and finish or any of these things. And for the next little bit, the engineers spend their time fixing the bugs. This really gets rid of UX debt. And the craft of a leader is to make sure that you can engineer the processes and the relationships so that people will give you the time to do this. The last, and I know the hardest part of hands-on design leadership for me, is around inspiration. Because it's frustrating to do day in and day out when you've done 40 different versions, iterations of that same screen, or when that perfect thing that you designed gets shipped to be an MVP that's that big. I've learned a lot about how to maintain the inspiration at Facebook because it starts from the top. Facebook is a really mission and value-driven company. It's not simply something that's talked about, but it's, I mean, it's practically tattooed onto our bodies. And Facebook's mission is to make the world more open and connected. And when you have that, a 10-year roadmap actually makes sense. This is Mark talking about this in our recent developers conference. When you look at the fact that if Facebook's mission is to make the world more open and connected, it actually makes sense that Facebook is investing in providing free internet to some underserved communities around the world or buying Oculus to promote virtual reality. So if we go from the company mission to my team, it's to make meaningful connections between people and businesses. And why? It's because you want to add value to people's lives and through the world through these connections. We're a data-driven company. We've got metrics. We've got revenue metrics. We've got user metrics. We've got growth metrics. We've got engagement metrics. Metrics don't inspire me as a designer. People do. It's translating these, me me these metrics to people problems that solve a basic human need. It's about thinking, how do I help this woman who wants to get more people to come and visit my shop? And because advertising is a supply and demand marketplace, it's also looking at the other side from the perspective of a market buyer who says, where's the nearest place to buy my fruit? Doing this inspiration leadership work is translating the company's metrics into things, into values that people care about and want to solve. And that's kind of this three-pronged nature of hands-on work around inspiration, support, and design quality. So to wrap up, communication, relationships, and trust are the underpinnings of a design leader's craft. They're how you build up design as a strategic partner within organizations with a powerful seat at the table. And it's how you create strong and diverse design teams. So I hope you've heard this thread through all my different stories. So I leave you all with a final call to action. Don't be the designer that simply puts the lipstick on the pig. Go out to refine and practice your leadership skills. Forge your own path and the path for all designers to become more strategic. I hope some of these stories will help. Thank you. Who would like to ask a question after that? Hi. Um, could you speak a little bit more about this ship love uh, framework that you yeah. use? Yeah. Um, so we have a series of values for Facebook. And 
gosh, I can't actually identify all of them right now, but Ship Love was added as, as an official one primarily because as, as a team of designers led by Julie Zhu, we were all very, very concerned um, just about the, the eroding design debt that had happened over time. So as a way to really internalize it for the company because it's a bottoms-up organization. This was almost a top-down set of values that different organizations could interpret how they wanted. And I, as I mentioned, the three parts of ship love is being really uh, careful about the UI craft, the usefulness of a product, and the ease of use. And using all three of those, each team could then individually interpret that and decide how they wanted to ship love. And it's such a short mnemonic, ship love, that it's nice because it's been worked into the vernacular of the team and it makes everyone care about the product quality. You know, people always also use, from the engineering perspective, they use the notion of ship love to talk about speed of the product too. Could, so I like that it's not just a design construct, it's something that the whole company thinks is really important. Hello, my name's Zoe, I'm from PwC, and I'm so sorry to everybody that I'm keeping you in the room, but I really came to ask you a question. A really strong theme that has come through the whole day today has been about the amount of time that design takes and the importance of gestation and fitting time into business requirements. But another thing we've heard a lot about is the importance of speed, failing fast, iterating quickly. Can you tell us how you reconcile those two drives in your practice? Yeah, I talked about a lot about that at Facebook because there is kind of this seeming contradiction, which is fit into the culture. Do whatever you need to unblock the engineer to go fast. And that was the story of my poor designer who all he did was throw all his design school thinking out the window and just go fast, 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 fast. And I think the most important part of that story is not about time, but about trust. Because once that level of trust is established, and he got that trust by working quickly, once you have that trust, then you can be like, all right, you've seen, we've seen what we can do. We can do more. Let's show you how if you give us a bit of time. Time for this design sprint. Time for this UX countdown. So, it, it's both of them together, and I think it's context of when to use one versus the other. So in the initial uh, phase of your presentation, you were talking about having standards defined for the UX. Um, the question is like, let's say we have already an existing product, and uh, we are trying, so for a startup company, it's good. You can go and defining standards as in when the product develops, but when you have an existing product, and you have different teams working on it, it's very difficult to get those standards defined. I didn't actually say that those standards were in place across all the Facebook product. Yeah. <laughs> At some point in time, you've got to establish them and just affect, use them for all new products going forward. Especially for a company that works at such scales at such speed as Facebook, we don't look backwards and go back to apply the standards retroactively. It's from this point in time, and it's just much more of a pragmatic approach, I think. Because I don't think it's ever possible to say stop stop everything, we're gonna take six months to apply the standards. It's just not, it's not a pragmatic approach to design. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.